These are leaders of the nationwide youth organization that calls itself SDS, Students for a Democratic Society. It has more than 300 chapters on the college campuses of America. Its national and local leaders in convention here at the Chicago Coliseum, June 1969, take the major credit for the rioting, mob actions, takeovers, and burnings on college and university campuses throughout the nation. Since finding out about the organization of SDS, we've always been quite willing to talk right, about We'll talk about socialism anywhere, in the streets or in the Senate, anywhere, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Mike Clancy, uh, National Secretary of SDS, and this is Bernadine Dorn, Interorganizational Secretary. Is there a communist faction making a big power play for SDS? Is there any communists back here? I guess there is. Are there communists in this organization? Sure, man. There's, there's a lot of communists. You'll see. When you come in on this and you hear people talking, you, you can judge for yourself whether they're communists or not. There are communists in the organization, there's no doubt about that. Uh, there are also liberals in the organization. SDS is not, and the movement in this country, is not something that exists during the school year and it's going to start up again in the fall. And if they have to worry about whether we're going to be in the streets in the fall, we're going to be on the streets and in every institution in this country from now on. What would you we're going to replace capitalism with socialism. This is the National Revolutionary Conference for a United Front Against So-Called Fascism, bringing together students for a so-called democratic society, the Black Panthers, and other revolutionary student and working class youth at the Oakland, California Auditorium, July 18th through the 20th, 1969. The underlying purpose of the meeting was to further Lenin's emphasis on exploiting youth to advance communism. He said, youth will decide the entire struggle, both student youth and still more, the working class youth. The next voices expose the communist nature of the conference and are from top representatives of the Black Panthers, the Young Patriots, SDS, and the Communist Party USA who were featured on the program. The synchronized sound film was not obtainable for this program, but because what the revolutionaries are saying is so vitally important to America's security, we are presenting their taped voices, which are properly identified later in the film. Welcome, everybody, once again. Uh, welcome back to Giving the Mic to the Wrong Person, our vaguely every two or three weekly chat show about uh, uh, leftist politics and nerd shit and whatever particular topic uh, myself or others want to talk about that particular week. Uh, I am your host, Jeremy, joined again by um, new friends and olds here on a uh, not heat wave, Portland, not heat wave yet, por uh, sunny Portland day. Yeah, it's been remarkably mild, actually, yeah, and for it's, uh, Portland summers. Yeah, it's, it's the... Um, <laughs> I kind of dig it. It's living in Michigan for years, and I got you know, you're from Texas, so it's kind mm. of a thing where, yeah, the uh, I don't miss the heat. Yeah, I don't miss the humidity. Uh, jo join us. You can hear. Um, let's see. Like I said, by uh, old friends and new. Want to go around the room um, and introduce everybody. And it's um, co-piloting this particular episode with me is uh, sitting on my side. If you would please introduce yourself to the viewing audience. <laughs> Uh, it's me. I'm Kevin, uh, uh, co-host of the Regrettable Century podcast, uh, and um, moderately longtime uh, friend and acquaintance, uh, right. Jeremy. And joining us is uh, a <laughs> special guest, where you announce your name to the viewing audience. It's um, uh, special guest in town and uh, very, very gracious with his time to uh, talk to us idiots uh, on mic about... Uh, about uh, things uh, old and new if you would uh, uh please introduce yourself uh my name's max album i met jeremy and kevin the other night at a panel that was 
about the experience of people who were active in the 1960s and continued to be involved in the radical left in the 70s and 80s. And I guess I'm the special guest because I wrote a book about that experience called The Revolution in the Air. And its third edition was released last year uh, with a new foreword by Elisa Garza, one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter. And I've been running around the country talking to other leftists to find out what's going on and share the experience from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And if there's anything useful in there for people who are fighting the challenges we face today. Right. It's almost like we want to... Um... I don't know how to. I don't know how to make that. How to bridge that into like a salvage joke? But um, you ever read Salvage Magazine? I have read Salvage Magazine. I've only uh, only a few. Uh, it's a favorite of mine. I'm uh, very fond of it. I need to. Uh, I think I've only read a couple articles, but I need to uh, to read more of it. And yes, as Max said, it's kind of a thing where he came and uh, did a panel discussion with um, uh, some uh, DSA members of the new. Not exactly a new sect yet, but uh, <laughs> it's not a new sect yet. <laughs> and I would like to lean on the not ever part, but uh, hopefully it doesn't ever turn into one. But it's yes, yeah, the Red Caucus is a newly formed grouping in Portland, Oregon. It's not tied to any uh, national formation at all. Okay, yeah, uh, it's uh, and uh, uh, just this great panel discussion, which I believe hopefully we will be posted online by the time this episode airs. I will put a link in the comments if um, because. Fortunately, Keith got it all on tape. And but one, uh, but Max, it was uh, your book. Um, I was hipped to by previous re repeat podcast get guest C. Derek Varn from uh, from Zero Books and his own show, Symptomatic uh, Redness, which I do recommend for everyone to check out. He helped us do a kind of a an episode which we called um, giving kind of like a baby leftist primer, and he recommended that kind of newly radicalized uh, lefty folk. You know, as, as he put it, it's, you know, read read more history than theory just to understand, like, what exactly the hell has gone on in the last 40, 50 years and how things have gone. And mentioned your book as an important one, which is how I first discovered it and very much enjoyed it. And so I was um, quite happy that uh, that Verso put out a new version. But so and as such, just wanted to uh, because, you know, uh, you were in town, wanted to take advantage of the fact and try to and just have you uh, on mic. So. I guess he pretty much already did like a kind of like a like a like a book pitch or something or an elevator book pitch. I think that would be yeah. I was just like, can you uh, can you uh, can you uh, give us just a you know just talk about your book Revolution in the Air? Okay, sure. Uh, and like, what 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 prompted you to want to write want to write it? Uh, the book starts in 1960s. It reviews the tumult of the 1960s and why so many people in the United States, it focuses on the United States, although it's set in a global context, why so many people turn to revolutionary politics. And then it examines uh, one of the particular offshoots of the 60s. Uh, it gave, 60s gave rise to a number of different radical currents uh, that persevered into the 70s and 80s and beyond. And Revolution in the Air, after going through the 60s in general, talks about the particular current that identified most strongly with the revolutionary movements that at that time were taking place in what we then called the Third World and what today is generally termed the Global South, Asia, Africa, Latin America, and the Middle East. So this was the section of the movement that identified the most strongly with the Cuban Revolution, the Vietnamese Revolution, the Chinese Revolution, the national liberation movements uh, across Latin America, Africa, Palestine, and the rest of the Middle East, 
uh, and across Asia. So that movement was a uh, powerful section. Uh, most people consider it the dominant section of the U.S. left for about 15 years, from the early 70s until the mid-80s. Uh, and the component of it that was organized termed itself the New Communist Movement, uh, implying that its claim was that the previous, the mainstream communist movement that came out of the Russian Revolution in the 1930s, had exhausted its revolutionary potential and something new and more dynamic was needed coming out of the 1960s. Uh, and that movement uh, crashed by the end of the 80s for a complicated set of reasons that are discussed in Revolution in the Air. Uh, and uh, came to an end as a coherent revolutionary trend, although some of the organizations and many of the individuals who were involved in that movement uh, continue to be active till today. Uh, I started writing the book in 1995 when I was working on a, a more ecumenical socialist magazine called Crossroads, uh, which was an effort by those of us who had been in the movements of the 60s, 70s, and 80s after the big changes in the world and at the end of the 1980s, the collapse of the Soviet bloc, the Tiananmen Square massacre in China, the Sandinistas losing the election, Hobsbawm, uh, the famous British historian, talks about that be, uh, the end of 1989 to 1991 being a change uh, in different period in world history. Crossroads was an effort by people from different radical trends to sort of take a look back at that experience, figure out what happened, what were new paths. Uh, during that period, I met uh, a bunch of people. I was in the San Francisco Bay Area at the time, and I was uh, fortunate enough to uh, work with a number of people who were then. I was in my uh, 40s, and uh, they were in their early 20s. And they were just coming into the radical movements. They had been radicalized by the first Gulf War in 91, and by a whole series of anti-labor and racist propositions in California, anti-immigrant, anti-affirmative action, uh, like that. Uh, and they knew something about the history of the Communist Party. They knew something about the history of the Trotskyist movement. They knew about the Black Panther Party and the movements of the 1960s. But the only ones who knew anything about the particular section of the left that was called the New Communist Movement of the 70s and 80s were a couple of people whose parents had been in that movement. Uh, so there wasn't any literature uh, about that movement, uh, although there was, uh, you know, you could find, this was before the internet was what it is today, you could find some of the articles and the newspapers from that period, but there was nothing really substantial that recounted the history. Um, so I contacted a bunch of people in the academic world uh, people who had been part of that movement or other parts of the radical movements, to see if anyone uh, who was a history student or a history grad student or a history professor or something like that was interested in writing a book about that. And I wanted to find out if that was in the works. Uh, and I couldn't find anyone who was doing it. Uh, I felt uh, it needed to be done, and I was in a position to take a crack at it because I had saved a lot of materials uh, for particular reasons when that movement ca crashed, and partly because I was working on this more ecumenical magazine, 
I had relationships with people who had been all in all parts of that movement, not just the particular group that I was in. Uh, so I took a crack uh, at, I, I stopped doing, uh, I resigned from my position at Crossroads, turned it over to a younger person. I also thought it was good for a younger person to have one of the paid movement jobs at the time. I got myself a part-time job to earn a living and started working on the book. Uh, a lot of people helped me, both some of those younger people I had met and other people who had been in that movement and people who had went back to the 1930s and 40s communist movement uh, that I had connections with. Uh, and uh, the book was published by Verso in 2002. I actually finished the final draft of revisions and turned it over to them on uh, Labor Day 2001. Uh, and planned to take a little break, but of course a week later was 9-11, so I didn't get a break. Yeah. Uh, threw myself into the anti-war movement. But, uh, that, so that's the story of the book, and its first edition came out in 2002, uh, and a second edition in paperback in 2006, and the third edition, uh, Verso felt that there was a new audience for this experience with the radicalization from 2016, uh, Occupy, Black Lives Matter, Bernie Sanders campaign, Donald Trump's election, that there was a new audience, uh, so they wanted to put out a new edition. Uh, Alicia, uh, who I had worked with, uh, she was part of that crowd of people that I had met in the early uh, in the mid-1990s. She was one, one of the younger people coming up. Um, so came out and here we are. So what do you think is, uh, uh, so, so you published it, you published it just before, uh, or submitted it for publish, uh, for being published just before nine eleven. Um, uh, th that definitely marked uh, a change in, um, the political context and political scene that we're all engaging in. But do you, do you? I want to get a sense of like uh, since uh, the original um, authorship uh, of the book itself to the republishing uh, that it's uh, the book is coming out with now. Uh, uh, thankfully, I'm I'm happy to hear or see that it's being republished and uh, getting circulated around. This is uh, really useful information that I think the left uh, needs. But uh, I want to get your sense of what the the changed sort of political climate from that time to now. Um, obviously, nine eleven is a major uh, part of that, but uh, I don't know, may maybe uh, more than that, more more uh, uh, beyond just nine eleven. Well, uh, when I first started working on this book in the mid nineties, uh, it was a period of what uh, I would call an ebb in mass struggle. Mm -hmm. uh, the sixties were a flow. Mm -hmm. uh, there was massive upheavals. There's always some struggles going on, some number of people turning toward the left, but the 90s were not uh, the 60s or even the 80s. Right, yeah. Uh, so, and uh, Engels wrote somewhere, between battles get a good schooling, and with mm. the idea that, you know, during the heights of battles, you don't have a lot of time to step back and reflect and look at that experience, although it's certainly healthy to try to do that as much as possible, but people who are activists were immersed in trying to figure out what to do tomorrow, next week, next month, like that. Uh, in ebb periods, there is a chance for at least some number of people to step back and you know, look at, try to analyze, try to write, try to share experiences, and for people to you know, take a little long, more long-range view. 
after 9-11, uh, there was a period of flow again, uh, with the anti-war movement being in the center of gravity, linked to anti-racist movement. I mean, that was the earlier part of the, this wave of anti-immigrant hysteria. There's a direct link between 9-11 and the concentration camps at the border today and so on. Yep. So uh, what was interesting right after 9-11 was the degree to which uh, war was already, uh, war and empire got thrown on the agenda. That happened to some degree off 99 in the Battle of Seattle and uh, the World Trade Organization protest. But that was more about the global economy. And 9-11 then cast real sharp attention on the role of war and state power. Uh, and it changed the dynamic then uh, within the left and so on. Um, that uh, period of flow lasted till maybe 2006, 2007, and then started to dip again. And a new round of upsurge began really with Black Lives Matter and Occupy, uh, and then going into the election of 2016. So right now, uh, we're in a period where uh, I would say that the polarization in the country uh, and because of that and related to that polarization, the degree of activism on the left but also on the right, uh, the polarization in the country is at least as strong as it was in the 60s, in my experience, and probably stronger than it's been at any time in this country since the Civil War. Wow. So we're in an extremely intense period um, and uh, different, of course, uh, from the 60s, from the 30s, from the Civil War period, but uh, with some similarities to those really intense periods uh, that I guess we'll converse about over the course of the, uh, this podcast. But um, So it's, uh, it's quite a sobering time. There's a lot of dangers, as there were in the 60s and uh, certainly during the Civil War period, uh, but there's also a lot of tremendous opportunities. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm, well, I mean, the <laughs> speaking of the Civil War, I mean that uh, uh, an incredible moment in this country's history, uh, uh, a massive leap forward in many uh, many senses, but also was an incredibly devastating uh, war with that resulted in a lot of uh, death and mayhem. Uh, do you that 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 is a really interesting perspective because you know being a a, a relatively young person myself, it's it's uh, you know it's hard to sort of step step outside of my sort of historical moment and get, get that larger um, sense of uh, of my position uh, and the way the world is just kind of feels like the way it's always been, you know? There is no alternative to, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the sort of uh, Mark Fisher's uh, phrase of the capitalist realism uh, is uh, really profound that it make you know, you, uh, it, the sense of, of the world being uh, the way it is and it can't be any other way is definitely uh, probably... Uh, uh, stronger in in, uh, in the world that you and I live in uh, mm -hmm. and have always lived in than maybe it has before. But that's that is a really interesting uh, point that that you're uh, making about the polarization that uh, that we live in today being so much more profound than it's really been uh, since uh, a moment in this country's history like the Civil War. Do you have any sense of how we got? how things ended up being at this point. And uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I know that that poses uh, really big dangers as well as great possibilities, but do you have a sense of what direction it's heading? 
Well, uh, there are alternative directions. That's what we're deciding out there in the streets and the ballot boxes and everywhere else. Mm -hmm. But uh, as far as how we got here, uh, if you look back at the Civil War, uh, slave power had been the dominant ruling class in the United States from the U.S. Revolution until the Civil War. Basically, the South, the slaveocracy, the planter class— uh, were the predominant capitalist class in the country. There, most of the presidents came from the South. The ones who came from the North, with a few exceptions, were pro-slavery. Uh, and uh, they were the dominant economic force in the country. That was the source of, I mean, there's, you know, it was all the stuff that's coming out now about the relationship between all the Northern firms, the Northern colleges. I mean, it was all built on the slave economy. Uh, and the... Uh, Civil War was a contest uh, between whether that slave economy was going to continue to be the ruling power in the United States or whether that was going to be overthrown by a coalition of the rising industrial powers in the North, uh, which were a capitalist class and uh, a, a free labor working class right. and small farmers. And so it was a contest over seeing... Uh, by the contestants as two different civilizations. Uh, whether, uh, you know, if you read the Southern Secession Statements and their um, their ideologues, it was about feeling that their whole way of life depended on seceding or winning uh, that war. And on the other side, the North, the Union Army, the U.S. Army, the abolitionist movement driving it felt that was a different civilization where uh, at least legal equality for the radical Republicans uh, was going to prevail. Now, if you look at the world today, this is where uh, that's coming into focus again. Uh, I think uh, the, the drivers of the current situation include uh, the general sense that the economy is not working for people, uh, the so-called crisis of the neoliberal model coming out of 2008 financial crisis and all of that, which is creating a lot of anxiety among all sectors of the population. But uh, the key factor that isn't as much discussed, but I think should be more discussed on the left, is demographic change. Uh, the United States is becoming, uh, will be a majority people of color country in 30 years or 40 years or 20 years. Uh, but at some point, the demographics are in this country are changing, and the demographics in the world are changing, and power in the world is changing, not in the way we wanted it to change in the 1960s in terms of socialism versus capitalism, but certainly power in terms of the domination of the United States and Western Europe over the rest of the world. Power is flowing to Asia. Power is flowing to the global south, economic change. And in this country... Uh, the symbol of, de of uh, demographic change was the Obama presidency, a black person elected to the presidency of the United States. Obama was not a radical. Uh, but if you look at the reaction of a big swath of white America to the Obama election, they saw that not that dissimilar to how the South saw the rise of abolitionism and anti-slavery in the North in the 1840s and 1850s, which is that their civilization is being taken away. What they considered white America, white Judeo-Christian civilization, is being threatened 
by these uh, darker-skinned peoples. And this is the assault on Obama as being born in Kenya. He's a socialist, all this kind of stuff. Uh, you know, on the left, of course, people are critical of Obama for all kinds of reasons in terms of his policies. But that's not why the right was critical of Obama. Yeah. Uh, and that's not how the right perceives the world. So the the degree of civilizational panic, uh, um, which, of course, has been fanned by a ruling class or a wing of the ruling class anyway, it's a right-wing backlash, uh, and is being reinforced by f- anti-feminism, the degree of misogyny, uh, homophobia, transphobia, the, the notion that the old order is giving way to a world of dark-skinned barbarians and uppity women uh, who don't know their place, and all these changes in sexuality uh, is being seen by a significant portion of the U.S. population, mainly white, driven by upper-class right-wing billionaires and middle-class, but including uh, an unfortunately too large sector, the white working class, that America as they know it is disappearing. And they are losing their country. They are the real Americans, and the rest of us are interlopers, uh, a liberal elite that is coddling people of color and women. This is a, a certain, that hardworking white America is being undermined. Right. Uh, and that polarization is a partisan political polarization, a geographic polarization, a racial polarization, and an information polarization, where given the new media environment, people do not even get their information from the same sources. Not even a question of their interpretation of what's happening, but the basic facts about what is happening in the world are up for grabs. Right. Two entirely different veils of reality. You know, as they, I think, they, I think some, uh, I think, uh, to to crudely uh, paraphrase both biblical writers and uh, Philip K. Dick, uh, we see through a timeline darkly. Getting uh, bridging on to a couple of the, the topics that you mentioned, and and one of the one of the questions that uh, you you talked about this at your at your panel discussion the the other night too is. Um, in terms of just the changing conditions with different eras, can you talk about, in terms of, I guess, I want to say uh, just like leftist organizations, can you talk about the differences between what the um, the students for, the SDS, the Students for Democratic Society, what they were facing in the 60s versus, you know, the new, them as the new left versus, say, groups like, um, well, not even groups like, just, fuck it, just, uh, just the Democratic Socialists of America, which, a lot of people have just described as kind of a mix of like a new SDS and also a barely organized Occupy movement. Um, can we talk? Could you get into like just just what ways are the are this circumstances or or you know how the organizations are composed or whatever? What ways are they similar and what ways are they different? You know the differences between the new left and what you could call the new new left. <laughs> well. Uh... 
the new left in its late stage in the late 60s was uh, coming off uh, the, a period of tremendous flow and tremendous initiative by the left globally. Uh, so that's when there was a powerful uh, counter system to U.S. imperialism. There was a rough alignment between the countries that had taken the socialist path and the non-aligned movement and the national liberation movements in the third world that were led by various forms of left socialist, Marxist, Marxist-Leninist politics. Uh, and so we were influenced by that. Uh, we were coming off a period of victories. And, and like you said, Kevin, uh, every young generation generalizes from its own experience. You think that what you grow up with is normal, uh, and that's the way it always is. So right. we, we came up uh, feeling change was constant, rapid. Uh, we were going to see it continue. Uh, the left was strong, had gotten stronger, uh, and we were on the road toward major revolutionary changes, uh, not necessarily immediately, but, uh, you know, we were optimistic, utopian. Uh, we thought the wind was at our backs. We also, uh, I would say a factor for us, was uh, we took for granted uh, the U.S. version of the welfare state. If you, it wasn't that much of a welfare state, but there was a social safety net that was much bigger than it is today. We were coming off the last phase of the post-war, post-World War II economic boom. Uh, the first, uh, when I was done with college, the first apartment I lived in, three of us activists uh, lived in an apartment. The rent was $65 a month. Uh, even with the wages being less than what they were today, it meant one person could work part-time or full-time and support three people to do political activism. Um, uh, you didn't live in fear of not having a job if you if the revolution didn't work out. Of course, some people thought they would never need to get a job because the yeah. revolution would take care of it. Um, most of us weren't quite that optimistic. But, um, that's the little sentiment that's out there today. What? <laughs> you know, yeah, I hear it. I've heard it. I, I hear it uh, all the time. The, my retirement plan is the revolution. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, the student debt was not what it is now, so that was a big difference. Uh, the uh, freedom movements in communities of color, the Puerto Rican movement, Chicano movement, the black movement, the new Asian American movement, they had organizational forms, tremendous initiative. Uh, there was a loose alignment between uh, men, most sectors of SDS and those movements. Uh, so, uh, and we were influenced, the, the common sense of the left, uh, the reference point was Marxism, and particularly the kind of Marxism that was being advanced by the Cubans, the Chinese, the Vietnamese. Uh, that was the reference point that everybody sort of had to define themselves in relationship to because of the um, fact that they had social weight in the world. You know, it, it wasn't, there, there was an intellectual construct with all that, of course, but, you know, like any other time, you're influenced by what is, what, what's moving things on the ground, I yeah. mean, like that. So that's a big difference. Today, uh, the global trend is certainly not that revolutionary movements led by the left around the world have the global initiative. 
right-wing authoritarian movements had the initiative. And some anti-imperialist movements around the world or groups that claim to be anti-imperialist have nothing to do with the left. Groups like al-Qaeda and other Mm -hmm. formations like that uh, have turned to various theocratic and reactionary social programs but feel they're opposed to Western imperial domination. Um, That's a big difference. The economy is completely different. Uh, so you're coming off the crisis of the neoliberal model. We were coming off the last phase and benefits of the Keynesian uh, model. So that that's a big difference. Uh, the organizational landscape is different on the left, and the ideological currents are different uh, for reasons that are you know, quite clear in retrospect, anarchism had much stronger influence in the 80s and 90s and yep. early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Uh, that always happens when socialist movements uh, and uh, have have led to more authoritarian kind of situations or countries where people feel there isn't the kind of democracy and the kind of participatory ethos that is in the vision of socialism. So anarchism uh, is more common. Uh, and that had a lot more influence. And there is no single kind of Marxism or even Marxism in general that's uh, hegemonic within the socialist left because there is not the same reality out there in the world. Now, of course, everyone has their opinions. People can make their intellectual arguments about why this or that particular framework uh, is the right one. But that's not how arguments in the world of politics tend to get settled. Uh, intellectual and theoretical debate is crucial, but what really ultimately matters is what the hell happens on the ground and who's got some clout. And people gravitate toward forces that have clout. You know, there's nothing like winning some fights if you're a, a radical movement to attract people to you. Now, there's a relationship between your ideas and making gains, but it's not a simple, neat, well, They've, they're the biggest one, so they have to be right. That it, it, It's more complicated than that. So is that um, r- related then in, uh, to the point that I've, I've seen you make before um, about uh, it's not a, uh, about sort of like trying to shift the focus away from having the correct line and toward having a fully fleshed out concrete analysis of the, the, glo- the, the sort of political global situation that we find ourselves in as a left. Uh, it, would you say that, that like, that's sort of the point that you're getting at with that? Well, I would say that the point that I'm getting at is that uh, the main thing is to grasp the what are the one or two, the key imperatives at a given moment, and to be positioned and have a practice that matches those key imperatives. Okay. And there will be a relationship between that and your analytic theory, but mm-hmm. it's not a one-to-one relationship. So there will be there are a lot of people for example who are gravitating right now toward that um the Trump administration that race and racism is right at the center of what the Trump administration is doing to build its power base and where the nub of struggle lies. So there's all kinds of people going down to the border and fighting back around the border. Mm -hmm. And that fight, right this particular week, is is where the battle in the country is joined. This is where the moral and political battle is uh, happening right now. 
And that's what's sorting out people on different sides. And there's people relating to that on our side who are coming from a religious place, who are coming from a political left place, Mm -hmm. who are coming from a, a... uh, a particular nationalistic place, perhaps you want to call it that, a, a Latino identity place, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, and so on. Now, all those forces are allied. They don't necessarily have the same ideology. Right. But they're engaged on the central fight right now, or an immediate fight, and they're building relationships and trust with one another. And it's, it's sorting things out. Um, and that's something to build on. And to the extent that continues, that's going to be like one of those checkpoints about where did you stand during this period. Right. And it's not the only one. One of the complications about this moment is there are so many that are happening. Climate change, mm-hmm. the border, uh, mass incarceration, the attack on labor. So it's not simple. The 60s were a little easier in that, in that respect. War and racism, the Vietnam War and the fight against racism were so overwhelmingly the pivots of protest. Uh, of course, it, there was uh, attacks on labor. There was the early stages of the feminist movement, second wave feminist. There were other issues. But war and racism so defined the 60s on both sides. Today, it's more complicated. But uh, where you stand on those issues you know, people are going to have a different view of how that fits into what did Marx say, Trotsky versus Stalin. Uh, Are you a Frankfurt School Marxist, a third world Marxist, a Lukács Marxist? What do you think of the difference? You know, Mm -hmm. uh, what was the right line on the Kronstadt rebellion in 1920? I mean, People are not going to agree on those things, right? Yeah. And they and they shouldn't. We, 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 exactly. Uh, yeah, uh, it's a big wide world, and we've got to have everybody sort of various differing per- perspectives on things uh, to make our way through it. You mentioned that in the real world, political debates are settled really through who who wins the day in uh, in really getting material gains with or having masses of people on their side rather than by having the correct line. And I think uh, I've heard you um, or or read something uh, from you where you're talking about a sort of critique of uh, the way that Western Marxists have read Mao's line, that quote from Mao about, uh, you know, uh, having the correct line, whatever he said, you have to have the correct line and then the uh, victories will follow. I, I feel like uh, what the le- a major problem that the left encounters is exactly this of just trying to be correct rather than actually trying to be connected to masses of people that can actually be mo- be organized and be mobilized uh, to act in concert for their own self interest. That to me speaks. Uh, really strongly in favor of the need to focus on implanting ourselves in in the working class, being skilled organizers, um, and uh, b- focus on focusing on building up institutions of working class power, and uh, and doing so in a, in a in a manner that that is oriented around uh, the rank and file. Uh, organizing model that's not a top-down sort of bureaucratic or business model sort of unionism or anything like that, and and being open to to new forms of uh, working class pow- assertions of working class power like tenants unions uh, uh, or something like that, which 
makes me so incredibly interested in, uh, in the point that you made in a Jacobin article about moving beyond the rank and file strategy, where uh, in it you talked about um, how uh, much of the new communist movement really was focused on on doing exactly this and planting itself in the working class and not just propagandizing at people. Um, if that's the case, then what went wrong? Uh, and, uh, you know, how can we uh, do better going forward? Well, uh, what went wrong was a mix of the new communist movement and all of the left uh, being outgunned uh, by a stronger enemy. So part of it is the balance of forces, uh, and then part of it is your own mistakes and shortcomings. Um, the dominant reason that we moved from the optimism of the late 60s to uh, through a 45-year, 50-year rollback, uh, counter-revolutionary rollback against the gains that were made by the global left and the left in the United States is that the balance of forces was against us. Mm. That That's the fundamental reason. Uh, capitalism, you know, Marx writes somewhere, you know, no social system disappears until all the productive forces within it has room, are, are used up. Uh, you know, I forget the exact phrase. Uh, we thought that capitalism had no more reserves, that the uh, gains of the national liberation movements of throwing out capital, uh, building, taking a different path uh, in the late 60s was going to squeeze the empire and there was sort of no way that the empire was going to be able to respond except with the kind of austerity and uh, that would affect across the board wider and wider layers and would lead to wider and wider resistance. But that proved not to be the case. Through a combination of trial and error and some conscious planning, the ruling class was able to develop a different model of capitalist exploitation. There were structural weaknesses in those countries that took the non-capitalist path. And there were vulnerabilities in the working class movements, particularly in the United States around white supremacy, but also around feminism and so on, where whole layers were the they were able to build a different governing coalition. Uh, the New Deal coalition uh, and the civil rights coalition broke up and you ended up with the Ronald Reagan coalition, the so-called Reagan Democrats. And the shift to a neoliberal model by the ruling class and so on, which you saw then in the shift in the Democratic Party from traditional pro-labor liberals to people like Clinton and so on. So that's the fundamental reason we ended up where we are. The problem of the left, the new communist movement and the other forces on the left, whether of whatever ideological persuasion, is we weren't able... Uh, the best, I think, in historical retrospect that we could have done is build a much stronger resistance, limit the gains, and figure out at what point we might be able to take initiative again, limit the gains of the other side. So we were in a fundamentally defensive period for the last 40 years. We certainly could have done a lot better. Um, and we made a lot of mistakes, and one of the reasons we didn't do better is because we anticipated a move to the left, and we built these mini-parties, sects, 
not only in the new communist movement, but the Trotskyist movement did the same thing, oh, yeah. the mainstream communist movement. Everyone built these little revolutionary sects, which did some good work and produced a lot of skilled organizers, but were just completely out of touch Didn't with where here. the masses of workers were right. at, which were fighting to defend certain gains that had been made and fighting around certain key struggles uh, that were on the consciousness of the masses. And, you know, you were just weren't going to convince millions and millions of workers in the 1980s, 90s, and early 2000s that capitalism sucked and it was time for a revolution. They looked around at the world. The Soviet Union collapsed. There's this uh, killing in China. I mean, of course, there's bourgeois propaganda and all this. But, you know, you're not in a position to counter it. And there was a real thing out there. Mm -hmm. I mean, millions of people were disillusioned with Mm -hmm. The attempts yeah. to build social. The USSR yeah. you, you really did say they were, You can say they were wrong, but this is people's experience. So how do you – you have to do better at um, fighting back. And there is absolutely a role for left publications, organizations, networks, institutions to keep the revolutionary analysis and propagate it to those who are – interested in it. Right. But the idea that you're going to build a mass revolutionary movement or that you have a vanguardist party because your notion of exactly the history of the socialist movement and how everything would have worked out if only everyone had followed your point of view is just so unmaterialist. Right. We were all trapped, not everyone, and different of us surrendered that being in that trap at different stages from the 80s through uh, the last period, but we didn't have a real alternative, uh, and that's what's exciting about the current period and, and also about DSA, which is the idea of a different kind of socialist organization, uh, one that is not infected with the same kind of self-centeredness and vanguardism, and it's a little more flexible ideologically. Now, DSA has a host of other problems oh, yeah. that are a yeah. different kind of problems to solve uh, for which various people on the left keep bashing it uh, mm -hmm. as if somehow why anyone would expect that a new organization this early in a flow period would have solved all those problems. Again, it's completely unmaterialist. Right. Uh, so there is now a different dynamic underway mm -hmm. as people search for new forms to do better. The problem still of the balance of forces is up for grabs. That That's changed some, but that's a very difficult. And then there's what we can change ourselves within our own forms. I, I think uh, climate change fundamentally alters uh, all uh, past left analyses of the world and what we have to do to confront capitalism, change capitalism, because everything else sort of presumes a, a perpetuity of of chances, <laughs> an infinite number of chances to going forward to be able to, you know, get, keep trying, keep getting, uh, keep, keep trying and get it right eventually because you'll keep, uh, because capitalism inherently continues to pose the crises pose class antagonism and repose the po possibilities of uh, changing things for the better for the future yeah it assumes it assumes st uh, stability well continued stability well I, I don't know about st stability but it assumes um 
it assumes, I think correctly, that that it assumes that capitalism will necessarily recreate the conditions for its own overcoming. Right. Well, I mean, it, well, stability in terms of it, just, uh, it assumes like the ongoing, you know, that that, that process is going to be there. Mm. That, 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 right, the, I got you. The stability it, of the process, right? Yeah, yeah. The continuation there. There is. A, whereas, whereas climate, yeah. Sorry. Uh, uh, whereas climate change undermines that stability of that continued process right okay yeah i see what you're saying i think you're right and one of the one of the questions that i did have that i want to that kind of bridges both you know uh, stuff about the climate crisis but also you're talking about just what's going on at the border um max can you talk and you, you mentioned especially like the like the previous anti-war efforts too that aren't as god aren't even nearly as pronounced as they were like 15 years ago can you talk about just the need for uh, the need for kind of like you know like leftist orgs or groups for people struggling to kind of like anti-imperial like anti-war uh, efforts, you know, as I said, also like international solidarity, and you know, for a bunch of different reasons. Before because you know, yeah, we're bombing folks, but thanks to climate, you know, coming, uh, not even I'm coming, shit's here. The climate crisis that both of those things, both the anti-imperial and also the climate stuff, is gonna is gonna make things worse. Like right now, and you know, first for other for folks uh, elsewhere. But, you know, as we see, this stuff always comes home. There's a question in there somewhere, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> well, Einstein said after the first explosion, the nuclear explosion, mm -hmm. everything's changed except our thinking. <laughs> and Lily Tomlin said we're the planet of the slow learners. Yeah. And when you take... Uh, and Martin Luther King said, uh, we'll learn together as brothers. He, it was gendered. It should be, we learn together. We'll learn to live together as brothers and sisters, or we'll perish together as fools. And during the perestroika years, Gorbachev uh, said uh, the new thinking was that we had to uh, cooperate uh, around the threats of human survival, nuclear war, environmental destruction, and the extreme inequality that was leading to poverty, disease. They're all variations on a theme, which is that we are now in a world that is very small, where we're interdependent, and where there are threats to the actual survival of the species, climate change, nuclear weapons, and the level of inequality and poverty that's leading to these plagues, disease, um, you know, that are just, you read about all the time, that are spreading, which are now coming back into the United States, which have been uh, moved off, uh, exported to the third world, mm -hmm. the, the huge shanty towns and favelas and barrios and so on, you know, whether it's Ebola or you, you name it. Um, the U.S., ruling class, or at least sectors of it, and certainly the right wing uh, and the military industrial complex has a plan to deal with all that. And basically their plan is the gated city. Uh, isolate the U.S., get on top of the resources, and wall it off from all these problems and be willing to beat shit out of anybody who right. tries to the barbarians at the gates. Fort, yeah, Fortress America. Yeah, Fortress America. Uh, and on climate change, you know, we'll do okay. We'll be able to survive this. They're, they're fooling themselves. So, I mean, I'm not yeah. saying that they have a plan that's workable, <laughs> but they have a plan. They, right. Well, or they, they think, yeah, they, they think that either they think they do or they're in full on like Thanatosian just fucking death, death drive at some point, which yeah. is at the heart of yeah. so much. It's you know. absolutely, that's absolutely right, Jeremy. And, but they have a plan. 
And we need a plan. And if our plan is not internationalist, it's a loser because the forces that are required to defeat their plan are an international forces. Climate change and the threat of nuclear war cannot be combated effectively within any one country or just a few countries. It, both of those problems, nuclear weapons have spread now. There's eight or nine nuclear powers, and there's 20 or 30 other countries that if it was a real free-for-all could build nuclear weapons within a reasonable amount of time. Uh, you have some of the most dangerous regimes on the planet right now, the Israelis, the uh, Pakistani regime, the Modi regime in India, not to mention U.S. imperialism, which actually has used nuclear weapons. Yeah, right. So, uh, and climate change is an existential threat. So we need an international plan for an altered society. And our role within the United States, we have a particular responsibility as the most powerful imperial country and the one still setting the tone to uphold our end of that, which is in our own self-interest as well as in the interest of the global proletariat, to use the old terminology. Mm -hmm. So we need, we need that kind of strategy. And then there's some very complicated um, complicated set of political problems that come in terms of trying to implement something along those lines, formulate and implement. One of them is, on the one hand, let me just identify two contradictory poles. On the one hand, the degree of threat means we need some radical solutions. Band-aid measures are not going to cut it. On the other hand, the degree of threat means we can build an extremely broad front with people with contradictory interests. And some of the people in those contradictory interests, uh, there's, a there's a range of views of how to combat these threats. So on climate change, there are obviously sections of the capitalist class that are just as aware as we are of the threat of climate change. And they have their ideas about how to combat climate change um, in ways that are not as favorable to the working class and vulnerable, vulnerable populations and probably not as effective in combating climate change right. as some of our ideas. On the other hand, without their participation in some level of change, it's extremely difficult to see hmm. how are we going to implement uh, the radical changes that we have. So they're very complicated questions about how broad the front can be, what is the minimal level of unity around action, and how that works. Now, in my experience, and I think, again, the Civil War is a great thing to study because in some the rhetoric of today's polarization in the United States is so similar to the Civil War, and there's so many dynamics that are similar with race at the center and so many other things. You know, um, Lincoln was not opposed to slavery when right. he was elected. Right. But the abolitionist movement saw his election as crucial and recognized that in the course of the struggle, it would pose before the presidency you couldn't stay in that place indefinitely through that kind of war. You had to move one direction or another. And Lincoln himself changed over the course. Now, there's movies and so on, and Lincoln is the hero. And, you know, we 
the left rejects that. We, we see that it's the abolitionist movement, the general strike of blacks within the South that Du Bois writes about as the driving force. But Lincoln does get the credit for being willing to move with that change as opposed to go the other way. And that was important. That was very important. Mm -hmm. And it's why people like Frederick Douglass th came away from that war with a very high respect for Lincoln and, and what that meant and that dynamic between the social movements from below and people who were related to those movements and influenced by them but weren't necessarily part of it themselves. That's a very complicated set of political relationships. Now, there's sections on the left who think even talking about that is bourgeois sellout. I just <laughs> sold out the revolution yeah. by doing that kind right. of thing. I don't agree with that. I, I, I understand the arguments. It's, I'm not into burning bridges. They're, most of them are not into burning bridges with me. I mean, I'm a, or with others who advocate this. But these are complicated issues. There's not simple. And I don't think, uh, this gets back to the point we discussed before, how we solve those problems and how we solve them in today's politics, there's only so much that Marxist theory and classical uh, sort of principles are going to help you answer that. They're useful, but then you just have to answer it partly based on your assessment of the forces on the ground. How are things moving? Who might go in which direction? Mm -hmm. said, These are not simple things. And um, those who think they are simple are um, misleading, I think, themselves mm -hmm. and their followers. Yeah. Uh, and and I think most people who uh, have an appreciation for how complicated these things are, it doesn't mean everyone understands all the ins and outs. I certainly don't. But there is a healthy skepticism of simple solutions uh, right now and dogma within the new activist ranks, which I think is extremely healthy better than my generation, where we were attracted to simple solutions. Um, so I think there's some real possibilities here in in a situation that's both very perilous and very complicated. Yeah, uh, it, 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 it's uh, incredibly perilous uh, and complicated. I think you're absolutely right about that. Uh, I have a friend, uh, Jenny, uh, who's the co-host of my podcast, The Regrettable Century, uh, recently quipped that uh, she said, I, I, "I wish leftists would stop treating socialism like their punk scene. Yeah, they want their politics to be their their sort of counterculture. Which you know, people should be free to have their counter. I God knows, I you know, I uh, thrive in in countercultural sort of con uh, uh, spaces. Spaces, yeah. Uh, but but, you can't but that's about, not yeah. what politics is. Politics is about um, uh, being." Scaling out, scaling up, and being uh, ingrained or involved with the masses. It so, can't, yeah, it can't all be about keeping the scene pure. <laughs> exactly. Um, but you know, w one of the things that strikes me is okay. So you, you, uh, I know you've said before that uh, y y you are an optimist. Ultimately, I, I'm not sure. I don't think that I am uh, uh, much of an optimist, even d despite my. Uh, refusal to let go of my revolutionary commitments. And I that is primarily, I think, for me, because of a convergence of two factors. One is uh, that I think the the impending ecological collapse is unique. Uh, it's 
foreshadowed, I think, rightly, what you rightly identified, uh, foreshadowed by the threat of nuclear annihilation because it's an existential, a global existential threat. Um, you know, this one thing can change the entire world. We could, uh, it, and it could destroy the entire planet, kill all of us. But there is a, uh, a key difference between the two uh, things. One, uh, which is that uh, with nuclear annihilation, there is a, a singular event that may may happen or it may not happen. And we have to avoid that whatever it is that will cause it to happen. Uh, and then we can go forward into a future that is uh, better, not uh, uh, full of the death of the entire planet. Uh Climate change uh, is a thing that is happening. Um, and according to the most recent science that I've seen, we've got, what was it, 10 to 15 years to radically, fundamentally change the nature of the way that our entire planet organizes itself if we're going to avoid complete and total catastrophic ecological collapse. And as much optimism as I can conjure in myself, I just can't see that actually happening, especially being uh, in the in a position uh, that I am where I am living in Mark Fisher's, you know, capitalist realism. I live in the world that is the wreckage of both the old left, uh, which is the, the collapse of the USSR and the uh, Soviet aligned regimes around the world, the turn of China toward uh, market economy, the seeming world where there is no alternative to uh, to capitalism. As well as the failure of the new left, where uh, the 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 new left that you've chronicled in your book uh, that didn't succeed in stemming the um, uh, the ebb of the left or the the flow of the uh, 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 of the employer offensive, uh, I it seems to me that that puts us in a position where it makes a bit more sense to turn toward. Uh, um, leftist thinkers who are more uh, focused on the negative and the pessimistic sort of outlook, like Walter Benjamin's call to the organization of pessimism, which, uh, if I understand him correctly, I think he was uh, saying, putting a call toward saying that we need to organize all of the people who who are convinced that the absolute worst case scenario is going to happen unless we do everything in our power to stop it. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, I think Benjamin was right uh, that the worst-case scenario did happen uh, with World War II and, and the Holocaust. I, I think we face a, a, a similar sort of situation where we have to resign ourselves to a very pessimistic, bleak future and do everything that we can to try to stem that tide. I'm not sure exactly what that looks like, but um, I do think that the the sort of um, delusional thinking that much of the the left has uh, been given over to, uh, you know, as far back as you can you can go, uh, is not going to get us in the right position. Uh, <clears throat> well, optimism and pessimism is a framework that a lot is personality based. Uh, in terms of expressing our individual reactions to the situation out there. Um, I, I, I'm a glass half full kind of guy, so uh, <laughs> that's, uh, that's what I mean when I say I'm optimistic or hopeful. That's fair. But, uh, but I'm, I'm not into 
to me, that's a, a, a different people will respond to that reality that you laid out in different ways psychologically. But I don't disagree at all with the reality that you that you're laying out. Um, my conclusion from that reality. Uh, it's not that different, but it, it's put it in a little different way. Um, you know, it's almost like the Lord of the Rings thing where uh, they say, okay, uh, you don't cling to false hope, but if there's a cheat, you, you try to find the way that, you know, you send the ring to the fire, you try to figure out what gives you the best chance. And to me, uh, what gives you the best chance is to have, uh, to get a chunk of power, of political power, in the most powerful country in the world, and to put into that power people who are the most likely to be able to respond to the needs of the moment via some combination of their own thinking and pressure from millions of people who are demanding it. Um, I think that, that uh, that's the path that we can do the best. Now, there are other paths. I respect there are people who are interested in forming transition communities, um, basically building uh, small islands that they think are going to be sustainable in the face of catastrophic climate change that may turn into, um, you know, uh, something that could regenerate a positive human civilization if the, there is catastrophic things that go on. Okay, that's, um, that's one way of dealing with it. Uh, I think that that way of dealing with it, I, the reason I particularly don't agree with it is that I, I, I think that the, the fight for power is what will uh, affect the fate of a lot more people uh, across the globe, and I'm interested in waging that fight as long as there's any chance at all. Mm -hmm. uh, I think climate change will be one of the drivers of uh, a fight for power. Uh, there's a great interview with the woman who's the director of the uh, Sunrise Movement. Uh, been a few interviews with her lately about how they're viewing uh, their work for the Green New Deal, what she's viewing the Green New Deal as, how they see that in an international context, what they see as the relationship between direct action and electoral action. Uh, so that's, you know, I think that's one driver. Uh, what I mentioned before and the way I see race as... Um, lying at the pivot of the way the fight is actually coming down, it doesn't mean that climate change is not existential, but the fight for power in the U.S. today is so dependent right now on whether the majority will give racism a pass by supporting the Trump coalition, which, on which the f uh, fossil fuel industry has pegged its Goal. There's an article in the Times today about another rollback of EPA regulations, uh, taking communities, denying communities the right to sue in federal court if they have anything to say about the pollution levels from the power thing. I mean, the, the fossil fuel industry is a key part of the Trump coalition. Um, everyone who's for Trump is they haven't been roped in because they're climate change denialists. It's gone the other way. What's happened is if the studies on why climate change denialism has become dominant in the GOP is because people who got roped into the GOP on race and racism, that just went along with the program. At some point, you know, the libs, climate change is a hoax. It's China. It's, you know, it's like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So not everyone on our side of that 
fight of that polarization. Climate change is not their main issue. But the people who are the political forces on our side are all against climate change denialism and to varying degrees have a sense that something has to be done about that. That's also true about war and U.S. intervention in nuclear weapons. Most of the forces, unfortunately, fighting around uh, opposition to the Trump agenda, war is not high on their list. They don't even educate their members about it or whatever. But individually, they're against it. They just haven't figured out how to deal with these things. That's a problem, and the left has the responsibilities to try to do better on that. But we will piggyback a progressive program around war and climate change onto the elected officials who get elected driven by another thing as opposed to their opponents. That's not true across the board, but it's true to a large degree. So, I, I mean, I don't know if this is considered an optimistic or pessimistic <laughs> scenario, but to me, we need to get as much power as we can as quickly as we can toward us for an agenda of peace, jobs, justice, environmental sustainability, equality, uh, and a, co a, a coalition around that, a majoritarian coalition can be formed in this country around that minimal program within which the revolutionary left, those who understand that that's, not, that's an unstable situation, a social justice coalition even if we have a measure of governmental power, is unstable because the right-wing, uh, the capitalist class as a whole, at a certain point, comes down on that, and it's not yet working-class power. But I see no way that that stage can be skipped. The notion that we're going to go from a quasi-authoritarian fascist quasi-fascist regime to mm -hmm. revolution, yeah. there, there's no evidence whatsoever that that's ever going to happen in an advanced uh, mm -hmm. country yeah. and under the conditions certainly that you lay out even more less likely. Yeah, it seems like the causation actually goes in the other direction of like failed workers' revolutions lead yeah. to the rise of fascism. Yeah. So, a, it, so. so in other words, yeah, the, the pathway to socialism is going to look a hell of a lot like social democracy. <laughs> uh, you can put it that way. I put it that the pathway to socialism le it goes through a Green New Deal and third reconstruction right. because I think uh, social democracy is an ideological term mm -hmm. that's based in a history of labor movements and what a particular labor movement has looked like. If you look at the, the dynamics of U.S. politics today, I think third reconstruction, which uh, seeing the role of the people of color movements, first reconstruction after the Civil War, second reconstruction is a term widely applied to the 60s, and what's driving a progressive agenda today, and Green New Deal, I think those capture a lot more uh, the, the um, actual dynamic of what the program of an intermediate form would be, which is a third reconstruction government, a Green New Deal government, both of which resonate with the U.S. population. Social democracy is a term that's meaningful within the historical debates of the left. It doesn't mean shit to right. the majority of people in the United States. True. The Russian Revolution wasn't fought over Bolshevism versus Menshevism. It's <laughs> peace, jobs, peace, bread, and land. Right. And if we're going to fight for a program here, we're going to fight for uh, a third reconstruction 
or with Green New Deal, those are the kinds of things that have emerged out of the actual struggles. Uh, and, you know, some of the debate on the left, I mean, I, you know, I mean, I'm, you know, this is what I grew up in. So I can spend hours talking to somebody or whether about Maoism, Trotskyism, Leninism, this variant of Leninism, social democracy, democratic socialism. You know, you mentioned a counterculture. That's my counterculture. Right. <laughs> you know, that's my little ideological hobby niche. What that has to do with actual politics, I mean, you know, I, I'm a lot more dubious about that than I used to be. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not going to get trapped in that world. I think it's an important discussion. I never would discourage anyone on the left from engaging it, learning as much as possible about it, and being fluent in it, and trying to figure out what in that is relevant to politics. But to stay only in that place yeah. and to define everything through those categories, I think, is is the wrong way to go. I couldn't agree more with that. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Yeah, thank you very much for that. Two um, little bits of history about uh, to go off your point about being stuck in that. I, and like I said, in, in this, in uh, you know, say I guess as much or as little on this as possible. But one of the, um, I had one question was about your the, um, your experience in my hometown of Flint, Michigan. And the other question I have is any comments on the fact that that the uh, the Revolutionary Communist Party is still out there, still in literally made news on the Fourth of July uh, uh, because um, in counter. Oh yeah, yeah. I was like, <laughs> you got any good? You got you got any good Bob Bacon stories? Because like the RCP is still out there and. Uh, and what's his, I can't remember the guy's name, but George, uh, you know, like I said, 2019, burned a flag at the goddamn Magachud rally on the 4th of July. Like I said, it's July 4th, 2019. What's the joke? Wherever, wherever the two people will meet in the name of Bob, uh, there will be a flag burned, but they're, uh, they're still out there. <laughs> So I guess whatever you want to opine about that, but also I would like to hear your uh, your 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 Flint story too, because I think it's if nothing else, two examples of what happens if you remain trapped within mm. uh, certain tiny little counterculture. Yeah, yeah. Well, you must be psychic, Jeremy, because Bob Avakian is in the Flint story. So in 1969, uh, when SDS uh, collapsed in June 69, the big splits uh, between the uh, faction. Uh, the Worker Student Alliance faction and the Revolutionary Youth Movement faction, and then the Revolutionary Youth Movement was split between the RIM-2 faction, which was more about going to the working class, and RIM-1, which was the weather people. Uh, and then there was a national action in October, the so-called Days of Rage, where the weather people charged the Chicago police and all of this, and lots of people were arrested, many people were hurt. Uh, and then uh, the weather people called a war council for Flint in December 1969, and it was just, uh, it took place a week or two after uh, Fred Hampton, head of the Black Panther Party, was assassinated by uh, Chicago police. Yeah, um, it only, it only, yeah, only four hours away. So uh, I was in Madison, Wisconsin during those years. I'm originally from Milwaukee, and uh, I was in school in Madison uh, 
at the time. There was a so the the whether people called the War Council for Flint in in a hall within the black community within Flint, um, but it 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 wasn't advertised beyond the uh, weather people as just the meeting of the weather people. And the rumor hit uh, our campus that it was going to be a reconciliation. Between the whether people were going to make a self-criticism for being adventurous and ultra-left in the days of rage, and there was going to be some kind of reconciliation between Rim 1 and Rim 2. So a bunch of us hopped in the car because that's what we were into. We, the faction I was associated with was the Rim 2 faction, which was you know revolutionary youth as the uh, link to the working class, begin to implant ourselves in factories, offices, working class communities, and organize a mass right. revolutionary movement. So we hopped in a car, five or six of us, uh, and drove to Flint, Michigan. Six hours or so. Yeah, and got off and found the place we were going and got took and all that stuff. But as it turned out, it was not a reconciliation meeting. This yeah. was the last meeting of yeah. the weather people before they went underground. Uh, this was the meeting that uh, the speeches were given about pick up the fork, uh, stab. It was shortly after the Manson killings where uh, Sharon Tate, uh, the actress, was found with the fork in her stomach. The pregnant, uh, she was pregnant, uh, and the line of uh, the weather people giving the speeches was uh, that was showing that uh, they were going to kill all that was supposedly good and wholesome to white America. Uh, and like that. Um, Bob Avakian, uh, you mentioned the RCP, was at there because he had also, either he knew or whatever, had heard the uh, rumor that there might be some opening. So in not in the formal sessions, but in the hallways, Bob was debating the weather people about the role of the working class, basically. Uh, with the weather people pretty much saying it was the black community and the chosen white people who would follow the weathermen that were sufficient to make the revolution, uh, whereas Havakian said, you know, we need millions of workers of all races and nationalities. So uh, I thought he did a damn good job, and he won every debate. Uh, hmm. Of course, it didn't make any difference to the other people <laughs> who were there who yeah. were pretty much committed to this uh, notion. Of course, you know, the besides the whole pick up the fork imagery being you know sort of completely repellent even if you don't know anything about the manson stuff you know the manson people uh those killings were an attempt to foster a race war in the united states with the idea that that would be a good thing because the whites would win and then we would be able to, you know, white America would be able to wipe out all these black people who were making trouble. So ironically, the weather people were glorifying uh, a racist, uh, a racist provocation by a, a group of people who were, uh, you know, about as nihilistic, but completely, completely racist. So it was a, it was um, needless to say that uh, that effort of going underground and bombing and all this, uh, that didn't work out even worse than the new communist movement thing didn't work out. But um, that's my story about Flint. Uh, Avakian um, was an interesting character. He won that debate and for many years was one of the figures upholding uh, a uh, 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 building a mass workers movement. Mm -hmm. 
around revolutionary politics. I didn't particularly agree with the the particularities of the precursor to the RCP. They were a little too Maoist for me, but um, which is a whole complicated discussion that gets into ideological minutia. But there were some damn good organizers in that group uh, through the 70s. Uh, who did a lot of really excellent work in a lot of factories and working-class neighborhoods. Uh, Eventually, the ideology and some of Avakian's particular quirks uh, took that group off into one of the more sectarian things and has become, uh, you know, has cultish aspects at this point for sure. Uh, One of the advantages of being in a sect or a cult is that, you know, you're more Pervious to the outside reality and the people who you can sustain yourself through all kinds of things because if you have at least a critical mass of money and a few leaders who are able to keep the thing going and then a revolving door membership, uh, the outside world doesn't so much intervene in you do not you're not forced to uh test your theories against the outside world right. you just you have the truth and you just hold on it's like a religious mm-hmm. cult and there's a woman named Yanya Lalik who's written who's become uh, actually the one of the country's leading experts on cults of all kinds who came out of a different uh radical group who's written some excellent stuff about both the politics and psychology. I mean, the Socialist Labor Party, the first socialist organization in the United States, formed in 1876. There were various uh, affiliates of the First International, but it's the longest, it still exists. Um, and there's people who, it's a Daniel De Leonist. his ideas were absolutely correct. And as soon as we all come around, <laughs> we'll be there. Hey, now, it's, it's, all, it's, it's innocuous. All, it's, it's all it nobody's takes. out there, you know, making, you know, and it doesn't demand that its members, you know, give their lives to this group and stuff. It's not a cult in that way. But so, but so Bob has kept. I first met him at that Flint thing in 1969, and uh, I haven't seen him lately. But they're still on there. Yep, oh, that's incredible. Do you happen to remember which hall that, which building that meeting in Flint was held at, or was it like downtown, or was it in the suburbs, or? Well, it wasn't in the suburbs. But I don't remember the name. Okay. But if I can remember it after the show, just, yeah, I'll, let me know. I'll convey. Right, because I'm just uh, I'm I'm just curious about it. It's always funny when um, when my hometown shows up and the, the the three cities that I lived in my life, Flint, Ann Arbor, and Portland, turns out have had some uh, political contributions. Coming to a close here, I want to thank you a great deal yeah. for your time. Yeah, this has been a really, uh, really great conversation. I've I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Anything to plug, or how can folks get a hold of you if they have any questions or could follow you, you know, see your writings, or is there um, is there any way anybody, you know, what's your preferred way of folks getting in contact with uh, you? Uh, th- there's a book-related website, www.revolutioninthear.com or revolutioninthear.org. It's got my email. Uh, it's got the different uh, interviews, the reviews of the book that mm-hmm. have been written, a bunch of other things. Um, so I'm easy to find that way. Excellent. So, and if uh, on the recommendation front, I'm in the middle of reading the new biography of Frederick Douglass. It's uh, called Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom by Blight. Huh. Uh, and I'd strongly recommend it. Uh, and I'd recommend all kinds of books about that history period. I think reading about U.S. history, 
not just the Civil War, but U.S. history in general, uh, is uh, we. I spent a lot more time in the 60s reading about Russian history than U.S. history. I'd have been better off if I'd have reversed the proportions. The Russian Revolution's important. I don't discourage anybody from reading about it, but I do encourage people from reading to read more about U.S. history, and in particular, Frederick Douglass, the abolitionist movement, Reconstruction, W. Du Bois, Black Reconstruction in America. These are great books. Excellent. Kevin, anything? I was just listening to the new uh, acoustic Panopticon album uh, this morning, and uh, I was really enjoying it. Excellent. <laughs> oh, anything you do? You want to plug your show or? Oh, uh, yeah, it's um, uh, the Regrettable Century, um, and you can find it on any podcast app of your choice. Uh, uh, and it's uh, the Grand Abyss Radio on Twitter. Excellent. Yeah, uh, uh, previous guests on uh, this own this own entire show. Um, uh, real quick, I think the only thing that I really have to re- do, I have anything to recommend? Not really. I'll skip it. Uh, if, uh, once again, uh, thank you everybody for coming in. Uh, yeah, and, thanks, Jeremy. Yeah, thank, uh, thanks for this. I will put. Uh, I'll just record all of the end credits later. And um, any final words? I enjoy being in Portland, meeting you and the other people in DSA here. And thanks for having me on. Excellent. Thank you. All right, and that's it.